welcome back to the Hidden Things and Hid Things, episode 21, where stuff happens and then we talk about it. In case anyone out there is writing a story and thinking about voicing their own story, I would suggest that you may not want to write a romantic scene between two characters that you're then going to have to voice. And if you do, that artistic thing that you wanted to try out where there's absolutely nothing but dialogue and no stage direction at all and no blocking and no description of anything that actually happens and you have to infer everything from the dialogue of the two characters that you're not attributing and you have to read them both, maybe don't do that because that's hard later when you have to read it. Also kind of like creepy to like be doing a romantic scene with yourself. You could go blind. So moving past that, we have Calliope and Vicus back in the hotel room. It's been some more time. And this is probably, I don't know, there's probably some Joseph Campbell stuff about this, but this is that moment where Calliope tries to decide whether or not she should give up and go home or keep going. This is an aspect of the depression part of the whole stage of grief stuff. And again, I, I, I mentioned this as a illustration, but I, I want to emphasize I did not know that that's what I was doing when I was writing this thing. This was just the conversation that she had because it seemed like the right time to have the conversation. Later, looking back on it, it's like, oh yeah, that totally makes sense because she's in the depression stage and that's when you give up and or think about giving up or whatever. You will find that this stage is not very long in the book. If you look at it, how much uh, real estate depression gets in the book is relatively small. And the reason for that is depression bores the shit out of me. If I'm experiencing it or if I'm experiencing it in others, I certainly try to be as considerate as I can when I'm experiencing it in others, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't just, you know, make me want to kind of spin my fingers a little bit and say, let's get on with it. And certainly with myself, I have absolutely no patience with it, whether, you know, whether or not I can deal with it or not, it's just what it is. So this is the stage that she's going through, but it doesn't mean that she's going to stay here for very long. And then we move back to a little scene right at the end with Josh and Mikey. I might be cheating a little bit here because usually I don't do these flashbacks unless Calliope's unconscious or asleep. And I don't think she is at this point, but we do one of those flashbacks anyway, and that's fine. I, it's fun to cheat a little bit. This is a fun scene for me uh, for a couple different reasons, but it's, it's interesting where it's placed in time. It's after, if you guys remember the scene, that, uh, the memory that Calliope has that isn't her memory where she's singing on top of the jungle gym but she's not singing on top of the jungle gym and josh tries to get her down and he pushes her and josh breaks his arm in this scene josh's arms in the cast so this is after that and probably after their parents died which kind of puts that whole tantrum on top of the jungle gym thing a, a little bit more in context also the cool your jets thing totally something my dad used to say he stopped saying it when he was about a senior in high school, because he used to say it to his brother and then his, his brother died and he stopped saying it to anybody. So it's one of those things where I had it stuck in the back of my head is this sort of phrase that, that you always associate with a certain person and then you never say them again when that person goes away. And so that's, that's sort of the same thing here where you hear it and you hear it and you hear it and then you use it in a, in a context that upsets everyone. And, and that's kind of where that came from. Also, again, we have a reference here to some, some classic nursery rhyme stuff. I encourage you to dig through some A.A. A. Milne and see if you can find the story, or rather the poem, that is in one of the collections. I think it's When You Were Six or something like that, where Pooh and Christopher Robin go around looking for dragons and they find some dragons with beaks. Spoiler, they're actually turkeys. But that doesn't matter. They're dragons in that story. And that's the dragons that they're referring to. So I didn't get to use it again because Hidden Things is too creepy for the uh, estate of A.A. Milne to want to be associated with it. 
you don't have a job, you have a life. Yeah, there's occasionally these tropes in, in this kind of fiction where this starts to feel like a job. You've, you've been called to a quest and nobody questions it. You just kind of do it. And the idea, and this is another cultural thing that's crept up probably in the, more in the last 20 or 30 years. I, I shouldn't say that. It's been codified in the last 20 or 30 years with video games. Big boss fight at the end. That's not new. I mean, certainly Tolkien's got the big boss fights at the end. I mean, the fights, it's a normal thing in fiction to make the life of the hero harder and continue to make it harder and continue to challenge them and make things worse and worse and worse until they can overcome it. Read any Spider-Man for 10 issues and you will see this happen. And then it culminates. And that usually means that, especially in any kind of action story, it usually culminates in some big fight with some big thing. There's a lot in this conversation, that conversation with Vicus and Calliope, where Vicus sort of takes a pin and pops a lot of balloons of preconceptions with regards to those kinds of ideas. There isn't always a boss at the end. The worst thing that you ever have to fight may not be at the end. It may not be that kind of thing. It may be almost anticlimactic, which is my hand back to the folks that say that the uh, last big confrontation in Hidden Things is somewhat anticlimactic. Yes, because that's how life is sometimes. Sometimes you have your fight and then you go on for a little bit more and you make a couple more decisions and then you have a, a somewhat depressing conversation and then you're just done. You move on. Calliope isn't the questing hero. This isn't going to be her job for the rest of her life because she has a life and she's going to go back to it. And well, assuming she lives, she's going to go back to it and resume some version of normal changed by what's happened, but you know, continuing on. And Vicus knows that. He does a lot of work here not to mysticize, mysticize, mystify, obfuscate. He doesn't try to make it seem too, if he were the Wizard of Oz, he would sit back there in his alcove with the curtain open. You know, he doesn't over explain anything because there's, there's kind of reasons that he has for not doing that. But at the same time, he's not going to draw some sort of great veil of mysticism across and say it needs to be this way. So he pops bubbles. And I, I kind of, I guess at a meta level, I'm doing the exact same thing as the author because I'm taking those ideas, the expectations that a reader that's familiar with this kind of fiction is going to bring to a book like this and saying, guys, don't expect that. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen at least the way that you expect it to happen. So there's a little bit of that. There's, uh, I can't avoid that. I, I see that in a lot of the stories that I write. There's always a little bit of meta author commentary on whatever genre conventions are currently being kicked in the kicked in the junk and thrown off to the side. It's kind of funny how the fights all work because like Vicus's big fight is early uh, and he loses. And then Calliope gets shot. You know, I mean, that's kind of a big deal. During that fight, Walker says something about, I'm not going to let her reach the effigy. The question is whether or not she heard that. And she does because she reincorporates that later. She actually mentions it later in the book. It's just one of those names like Guide and Goad and stuff like that. It's also a name that I picked off a map that's somewhere near Harper's Ferry over in Iowa. There's a interesting little geographic location called the Effigy Mounds. Although that actually doesn't have anything to do with this story. I thought maybe it might at some point in time, but it's, it's not what it's about. It's about something standing as a symbol for something else, which is definitely what's, what's going on in that old house when they get there. She doesn't ask Vikes about it because she's actually a pretty clever person. They're going on a quest. She's trying to find stuff out. Walker's trying to prevent her and he doesn't want her to reach the effigy. Obviously, the effigy is where she needs to go. That's not 
that's not math that anybody should miss. Uh, and Calliope is pretty clever. Once she gets over denying whether or not any of this stuff is actually happening, she can put two to two and two together pretty well. She's a clever girl. She's a clever girl without being scaly and um, like a non-accurate, non-scientific representation of a velociraptor. What's next is more of the same. We have more chapter stuff. Actually, we're out on the highways, ladies and gentlemen. We're up to one of my favorite parts. One of my other favorite parts. One of my 15,000 favorite parts in this book. We're out on the highways looking for dragons, ladies and gentlemen. 